Hey, I'm Tom Bartels from GrowFoodWell.com. And I'm Darren Parmenter from CSU Extension here in La Plata County. And we are still the Garden Guys, where we help solve some of the mysteries of gardening in the Southwest. So today we're going to be talking about some of the issues you might be approaching in the spring, including understanding a little bit more about your soil. Now, for some listeners, they might think we're just obsessed with soil, but we're going to be talking about soil a lot because it's such a main component and so critical to growing plants. Yeah, and we are obsessed with it. And that's okay to be obsessed with soil. I mean, it's, what's the quote, and I'm sure I'll butcher it, but it's, you know, mankind owes its existence to the fact that there's six inches of topsoil and that it occasionally rains. And it's easy for us to see that above ground component of a garden or a tree. There's a whole other part of that plant that is below ground that is probably doing the vast amount of work. And that's hard that we can't see it because we want to be a visual learner. But there is a hidden world in soil and many, many books have been written on that hidden world and we're still discovering so much about it. Soil science right now is learning so much that we hadn't known about the billions and trillions of organisms and how they interact with everything else in the soil profile and above ground plants. And it's really a fascinating thing that we will try to simplify over the course of several of these episodes. Yeah. You had just mentioned to me that you were doing this soil jar test with your master gardening students. And I found that interesting. Now, first of all, why would you put soil in a jar? Why would you not put soil in a jar? One of the things we do, we just call it a soil milkshake, which makes it sound a little bit fancier than soil in a jar. What we're trying to determine in a very simplistic way is our soil type. And so we're measuring in this milkshake in a jar um, our soil texture, sand, silt, and clay. Those are the three, essentially, soil textures we have here in gravel and rock, but we're not really measuring those here in southwest Colorado. And how does it show you that when you put this in the jar? So, like, the step-by-step process, and, you know, again, we wish you could see the jar. Well, actually, imagine jar. Close your eyes. Oh, See it. Yeah. Yeah, there's the jar right there. It this wants to be a, a straight-sided jar. A mason if, jar? Kind yeah. Of just get any kind of jar that's straight-sided. Just a, a canning jar works great. I fill it up about a quarter to a third full of soil. And then I'll add a teaspoon of soap. And that just kind of breaks that soil down into those three different texture types, sand, silt, clay. And then I fill it about three-quarters full with water. Okay. Okay. I put the lid on. And I put the lid on tightly because for the next 10 minutes, I'm going to gently shake that soil and water, mix it together, make that milkshake, if you will. So I'm going to mix all that stuff together. 10 minutes. It doesn't have to be vigorous. You don't need a workout. And after that 10 minutes, I'm going to set that jar on the table, and I'm not going to touch it. And you're not going to drink it? Uh, no. And you know, if you don't add whipped cream, you don't add... No, we're not drinking it. So if we think about soil texture, there's going to be three different sizes. They're going to be sand, which is the biggest. Okay, so sand is going to settle. It's going to drop fast. Yes, it'll be the first thing to settle. So at two minutes, we're going to get out a handy Sharpie, and we're going to mark that line on the side of the jar. Okay, so that's two minutes. That means the vast majority of sand will settle in that first two minutes. I'm going to measure that, put that number on a piece of paper, and then I'm going to wait two hours. The next largest texture that settles out tends to be silt. Okay, and then I mark that line. And then, again, I'm still not touching this jar other than putting a nice little mark on the side of it. And then I'm going to wait for that water to clear. 
Typically, it's overnight. Again, we don't want to move it to bring everything back up into suspension. And then that last mark I do is going to be clay. Now, here's where it's going to get complicated with math. We're going to have a measurement of, of sand. We'll have a measurement of silt. And then we'll have a measurement of clay. Add those three numbers up. That gets you your number on the bottom of the fraction. Okay? Okay. I'm with you. <laughs> I, my, I don't know if I'm with me. I'm starting my, to just... My know. head is smoking right okay. now. But. <laughs> then you just do that simple division. So if I have four inches total of, of soil, three inches is sand, half inch is silt, and half inch is clay, then I do three divided by four, 0.5 divided by four, and 0.5 divided by four. Whoa. And that gets me three percentages of sand, silt, clay. Okay? Okay. Now, you're going to Google... <laughs> Soil texture triangle. Have you ever done this? No. Yeah. And those three will have three different axes. One is sand, one is silt, one is clay. The percentages of each. And then you just triangulate. You mark your line at sand, you mark your line at silt, you mark your line at clay. Where those three lines intersect will give you your soil type. But we know our soil type. It's not just clay. Here's what everybody thinks. I have all clay. It only takes 20% clay for a soil to behave as a clay soil. Right. But yeah. clay's a good thing. Don't it, don't give the bad rap to clay. Yeah, we've been there before. We've right. discussed the, the benefits of clay. So I've done mine. Mine is a clay loam, okay? Which is, a, a, I love that. That's a great definition for soil for me. Sure. I like that aspect of clay that it holds water, provides a lot more nutrients. That loam kind of gives it that ability to, that water to pass through at a relatively nice, even rate. That's kind of what I'm looking for. Well, it does create an interesting visual effect to see those layers in your soil settle out at different rates as opposed to just looking at your garden soil it just looks like soil you can't really tell you know you can kind of feel the clay but you can't tell percentages until you actually settle them out right. in a jar and take a look at them and measure them and you can do this by feel too right like i have my master gardeners you put soil on your you know like a, a mud ball not super super wet not super super dry and you feel it. So understanding actually how your soil feels will help you understand your soil. So sandy is going to feel gritty. Silty soil will feel kind of smooth or oily. And clay will feel sticky. I think a lot of people's soil feels abandoned and forgotten. <laughs> For those of you with abandoned or forgotten soils, please contact Tom Bartels. 1-800-FIX-MY-SOIL. So we're at that point now of, okay, we know our soil type-ish. Yeah. And then we're getting ready to kind of, you know, play around the soil a little bit. Outside. Work it. Yeah, we're, we're looking at spring. You can start thinking about where your tools are from last year. Get them out from the garage. We're going to be starting into some labor here. Yeah, and I, I think if I remember back to last year, the Christmas edition, which was such a wonderful edition. Of course. Um, we got so many gifts out of that. Thank you, listeners, for all those wonderful <laughs> gifts that you did not provide us. One of those things that you mentioned was, how about a broad fork? That would be something that we could share. We could you know, spread amongst friends and fellow gardeners. What is a broad fork? Uh, it's funny that you asked that because I just had a friend call me who was savvy to the broad fork uh, benefits and called me to borrow it, which yeah. was the perfect thing because I only need it the day before I'm going to be planting, really. And he needed it right now. And so he took it for a week and... The broad fork is just like a giant U-shaped bar. Some people call it a U-bar. And it's about five feet tall with the handles and a big metal bar with huge 
like foot, foot and a half long tines, big metal tines underneath it, where you stand on this rail and lean back and you use your whole body weight to break up clay soils or any kind of soil that's been compressed. And so what this does is allow you to just walk backwards through your bed, one leaning move at a time and break up your soil. It's a low till way to kind of amend and get your soil ready for the spring. And it's also a great way to pull up those early season weeds. Instead of fighting them and breaking them off, most of the weeds are pretty smart and they, they regrow underground when you break them off at the surface. So if you broad fork, or you, you could even get away with a garden fork during this process, you break up that soil uh, one bed at a time, just backing up and breaking up and, and leveraging that tool to break up the soil for about a foot deep. That should allow that loose soil to give up the contact of the roots that that weed is, is holding on to the soil with. And then you just lift the whole weed up by the top and it comes with the roots right along with it. And it's a real easy way to do your early season gardening so that those weeds aren't going to be getting a jump start and competing with your seedlings when you finally put those in. I find the beauty of the broad fork, and, and Tom had just mentioned this, was that it's a minimal till. Yeah. You know, so you're not just destroying that soil structure that you work so hard to build with compost or manure or leaves that kind of adds that structure to soil. A tiller, like a rototiller, which isn't always the worst tool to have, but it kind of just disintegrates almost all of that soil structure. So then you have to build it back up. It makes it easy to plant into, especially with seeds but you kind of lose that structure. And here in the Southwest where we have very little organic matter, we're all about trying to build and hold our soil structure. Now you said you had a student who asked you about an irrigation problem. Yeah, irrigation problems are gonna happen throughout. I mean, <laughs> that's kind of a given. Yeah, that's, that, yeah, those two words tend to go together. <laughs> irrigation hyphen, problem. It's just a hyphenated yes. word. Yeah. Precipitation challenges. Okay, that's gonna be our <laughs> challenges in Southwest Colorado. They want to get those early season crops out, right? They yeah. want to get their kale out, their lettuce out, and their carrots going right now because soil temperatures are, you know, hovering around 50 degrees. The challenge is that their irrigation system isn't turned on yet. They live in an HOA where someone comes in, every house, boom, 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 they turn on the irrigation system. That may mean there's no spigot outdoors if it's not a frost-free one. That may mean there's just going to be some irrigation challenges until that system comes on. It really is a, not an easy one to fix other than if you want those early season crops, you're going to have to hand water. Right. It's a tricky transition process right now in the spring where you could hand water, but then you kind of want to empty your hose at night so it doesn't freeze and crack. And so sometimes during this transition, while it's still potentially freezing, you kind of have to do a little bit more maintenance on how you do that. Yeah. Or you, and you just kind of wait it out too. You can wait for the irrigation system to come on if, if that's kind of the route you want to take. You know, the middle of May is, is not too late to plant our cold season crops by any means. That's right. when a lot of those will still be going out and they'll be fine. Hey, we've got a caller calling in. Oh, is someone wanting to check on the uh, status of our car warranty? Is this a scam or is this <laughs> an, an actual real person? Who's our caller today? Well, let's find out. Okay, go ahead, caller. Are you there? Yes, I'm here. Hi there. Hi, what's your name? Um, my name is Anne. Is that with uh, two N's and an E? Ooh. No E, please. No E, please. That's what my kids say at dinner every night. No E, please. 
So uh, please, please. what can we do for you today? I have a question and I really appreciate your taking my call. I'm kind of new at this, but I've always wanted to raise tomatoes. So I went and got a few little seedlings at a local nursery and they're maybe, I don't know, four inches tall. Um, and my friends and I have a bet because we're disagreeing on what I should do. Uh oh. I think it's too early to put them outside because they're such little baby children, tomatoes. And my friends say, hey, it's getting up in the 70s now. It's warming up. That way you'll get a head start on the growing season. So my question is, which of us is right? Should I baby them inside for a while or should I throw them out there into the big wide world? So take care. <laughs> that was a lot of questions. So the first part, I'm gonna. Did you actually in this bet? Did you wager any money? Uh, no, just my honor. Uh, you should have wagered money because you probably would have been right. I'm feeling good about that. <laughs> yeah, this is May seventh. So first week of May, it does get a little tricky because it feels warm. We will get some warm days coming up, but this is being Southwest uh, Colorado, Four Corners in general. Spring can be very surprising, and as I've said to uh, my students before many times, it's it pays off to be lazy in the spring, i.e. you don't put your vulnerable seedlings out and let them get popped by the inevitable freeze that sneaks up on you. And our climate is always challenging, right? Like, you know, two years ago, we had our last fr- spring frost on June 21st. Now, that's going to be that outlier that sticks way out and says, I'm just going to screw with everybody. But it's not uncommon for us to have these cold temperatures in early to mid-May. Now, we may not have another freeze, but you may get a cold temperature. You may get a couple nights of cold temperature, and your friends may actually be pseudo-right. I'm not going to give them too much credit, but you can potentially protect those plants. You know, if it is a tomato or a pepper or an eggplant, whatever it is. You can do some levels of protection. It just depends on how cold it's going to get here in southwest Colorado. Did your friends say they had some protection on these tomatoes? Yeah, they said they've used the wall of water. Oh, Ah. product placement. Very good. I appreciate that. Wall of water company. Yeah, so the wall of water is pretty cool where it's like a mini greenhouse. You fill up all these different cells around the plant with water. um, And then you place that that wall of water over the plant itself. So it kind of creates this little greenhouse where you may get 10 degrees, 15 degrees of uh, frost protection, but you may not get enough with that. And they don't always work and they're a devil to deal with. And you'll always will find a couple rips, but that is a good technique to protect your tomatoes. Now, if you have a couple tomatoes, is that you said you just bought a couple? No, I bought, you know, four. Yeah, okay. And that's not bad. But if you're doing, I'm looking behind me at, you know, and... Tom's got like a hundred tomato seedlings starting to encroach on my chair. You know, that's going to be a lot to put a hundred walls of water out. But if you got a couple, four or five, half a dozen, then yeah, the wall of water is a good technique. So rather than winning this bet clean and clear, um, it sounds like there's a caveat here. There's a little bit of a subtlety in that. Were they suggesting that you could put your tomato seedlings out if you too added walls of water or were they just saying oh no no just put those seedlings out they'll be fine 
Well, they were advising me to, to use the wall of water. Ah. If, if, in case, and since I was concerned, you know, about planting so early, so. So then technically you're both right. Uh, you can split the profits. Oh. Yeah, because you, you are right to be concerned, and they are right to implement some sort of protection for the freeze that's inevitable. And you could luck out and not have a freeze, but historically, eh, you probably could have lost them. Because I would assume that a wall of water will freeze. No, actually, that, that water doesn't really, unless it gets really, really cold, but that water typically won't freeze. Because oh, it's been okay. heating up all during the day and it's relatively warm. And most, I've never seen a wall of water freeze. That may be actually still be pretty good insulation if it actually froze. Yeah, but then it's a wall of popsicles is what it is. Yeah, so if you <laughs> put some different colors in there and a stick. Oh my God. Then you can have a wall of popsicles. Yeah, then you'll have something to eat since your tomatoes will have completely <laughs> dropped by then. What kind of tomatoes were these? You know, I, I, I told him that I liked cherry tomatoes and I wanted some big tomatoes too. So I'm not quite sure what I got. Is it green or is it brown? I, Hopefully you bought something green. They're green. They're, they're really cute. They're nice. That's a good start. That's a good start that you're raising cute tomato plants. So right. I think you're ahead of the game. And they have that cute little tomato smell that oh, I yeah. love. Well, I think, I think you're okay, but now you're going to have to get some walls of water or a hoop house that you can build with relatively easy materials. But for those that don't want to go through all that, you just wait a few weeks until after the freeze date, and then you can go ahead and put the tomatoes out unprotected. So what should, if I do that, if I go that route, what should I do with them until then? So I'm all about you waiting. I, I'd say wait, because also that soil's still probably pretty cold. So that tomato plant's not going to be actively growing even though it's in the ground. So I say you just wait. You procrastinate, wait a couple weeks, check the weather, like the 10-day uh, forecast there towards the end of May, like the third week of May. Look and see if anything potentially cold is coming. Until that point, you're going to do that hardening off process, which is kind of bringing those plants outside in a shady area during the day, bring them back inside at night. And I know that can be a pain, but if you only got four plants – it shouldn't be that hard. Make sure you give them a good drink of water. Make sure they're staying kind of upright and they're not getting super leggy. But then that's only two weeks of doing that. That's a pretty short-lived period where your care is going to have to be somewhat extensive. Yeah. What, uh, what kind of light should they get? Well, in general, if you're going to watch them and bring them in at night to avoid the freeze, this hardening off period could be plenty of, of light for them if they're getting direct sunlight at first, say an hour a day, and making sure they don't have the wilt reflex too dramatically. And a little bit of wilt is normal, but that tells you, okay, they're ready to come in. Each day, incrementally, you can add more light. So uh, over the next few weeks, if you want to continue doing that, you could just use sunlight to keep them really growing in pretty robust fashion. And then after a, a week, certainly, they could take eight hours or more of sunlight, and then you're just bringing them in at night to make sure they don't freeze. Now, if it's not freezing and you know that based on looking at the forecast, you can start leaving them out at night so that by the time you're ready to put them out in the garden, um, they've had a full day or two or three outside during full heat and full cold so they know what they're, they're up against. And that is really, you're just hardening them for those conditions. You're and getting them Colorado ready. Yeah. There you go. That's oh, all you're doing. I like doing. that. That's a good idea. You're yeah. in introducing them to the climate that they're expected to grow in. That's all hardening off is about. 
But it sounds like you're on your way. And I think uh, you'll have good luck with those as long as you you listen to your caution that you are rightfully feeling for those very delicate plants. And listen to the garden guys at KSUT.org. Always, always. <laughs> well, good luck with those. And uh, sounds like you'll be splitting the, uh, the treasure from that bet with your friends. Yes, that, that we'll both, everyone is happy now. The tomatoes, the people, we're good. Oh. Have a good day, Thank Anne. you, guys. Thank you, Darren. Thank you, Tom. Very welcome. Have a great one. You too. Now, that caller had a very common uh, concern about when to put early season tomatoes out, and we forgot to ask her if they were indeterminates or determinants, but it sounded like she might have just gone with healthy-looking plants, so that might have... And it probably didn't matter, really, at yeah. her level, what they were determined or indeterminate. But it does matter in, in the sense of how you plant and structure yeah. the garden around them. Well, let's briefly talk about the difference between a determinate tomato and an indeterminate one. Sure. And as a reminder, tomatoes are going to be the diva of your garden. Yeah. Okay. They are going to want the attention. They need pampering. Yes. So you have to you have to make that kind of that dedication to these plants. If it's four plants, if it's 20 plants, or if there's 100 tomato plants in your garden, they're probably going to take more time when it comes to every stage along the growing season, right? From planting to pruning to harvesting to storing to all those wonderful things. But one of the big differences is the determinant or indeterminate. We tend to think of a determinant as also sometimes called a bush tomato, where it's going to put out all of this vegetative growth. All of its resources are going to vegetative leaves and then it's going to put on this huge flush of flowers which will hopefully fingers crossed result in a huge flush of fruit and then it's kind of done it's a smaller plant it's going to be maybe a foot two feet tall depending on where you're at could be smaller could be a little bit bigger but it's nothing like the indeterminate and it doesn't require structure right it doesn't the require trellis, the trellis a, a stake i've had to occasionally stake a determinate tomato just so it wouldn't fall over yeah so like one piece load. of bamboo with yeah. the little yeah. twist tie around it yeah just like go. loosely tied on there and that's really just at harvest like as right. it puts on those big fruit and in contrast indeterminate tomatoes will have the harvest continue throughout the season it'll keep putting on blossoms and keep putting on fruit as long as it has enough resources and space to do so so then the onus is on the gardener with an indeterminate tomato to create a trellis situation to hold that plant up because it's more of a vining reaching branching tomato that won't um, provide its own structure so and you don't want that to be sitting on the ground where the tomatoes can get into trouble in the soil. So you need to raise them up. And so that's why you see so many tomato cages and all kinds of contraptions contraptions and plastic uh, yard toys that have been propped up, whatever they can use. My yard looks like Mission Impossible come (laughs) September. (laughs) Mission Impossible. Now, that uh, brings up kind of a serious note, a caper that's going on here in the Four Corners region. Yes, this caper that's going around the entire United States. Yeah, but it's finally arrived here. Yeah. What are we looking at here? This is more of a serious subject. Yeah, so this is the highly pathogenic avian influenza, otherwise known as HPAI. Avian flu. Avian flu. Yes, I don't even know. It's like H5N1 something. Is that what it is? It's H5N1 is this this particular strain, yeah. And we want to be careful. This is currently, this, this strain, 
although it may mutate, is not affecting humans. Right. This is only affecting birds, and it's only you know affecting certain birds throughout uh, the country. So, and this is transmitted by wild birds, yeah. from what I understand, but it can then tra- be transmitted to local flocks of chickens or ducks or any kind of domesticated yeah. birds. And this is kind of where they're seeing this, is in these migratory waterfowl. So as the geese or the ducks, mallards fly overhead, they're, they're pooping out virus. They're shedding virus. And as they poop it out, there's the chance that this can affect a flock if it comes in contact with that flock. Or if they're sharing water, you know, they'll come down into a pond on someone's property. If you have ducks or geese, they're intermingling. And that's what we're really trying to avoid because the waterfowl can hold on to it and be affected but not be killed. Now, our backyard chicken flocks, those chickens are incredibly susceptible to uh, HPAI, and well, it is a fast mortality rate. Right, it's like ninety to one hundred percent in one to two days. That's yeah, the mortality rate. So this virus kills backyard chickens very quickly. Very quickly, yeah. yeah. And it's it's kind of scary to see how fast they can actually hit a flock. And yeah. you know, uh, recently we've been going kind of almost door to door, flock to flock. Um, throughout parts of the, the valley that have seen it because we've actually identified it here in La Plata County. Um, one of the fewer places that has actually been identified in a backyard or commercial flock uh, in the state as of now. But we've identified it. They, the state vet's office has shown that, okay, this is what it is. So our job now uh, for extension in cooperation with the Colorado Department of Agriculture and the state vet office is to kind of do the census work of, hey, do you have chickens? If you do, here's what you need to make sure you, you know, you're trying to take care of. So what, if you do have chickens, what are the steps that they're recommending you take to protect your flock? Yeah, and, and what they're really, the danger of this, this, of the disease right now is in commercial flock. So if one chicken gets it, it can spread really quickly. And that's why in over 30 states now, it has affected 30 million birds so they've had to euthanize 30 million birds i mean that's incredibly powerful how how damaging this flu is for the commercial people yeah you know but there are steps that we as as growers or as chicken owners can potentially take to try to mitigate the potential of the virus one of the things that they're recommending is to move your feed for the chicken feed inside the coop as well as the water so you're not attracting wildlife to that food and water source And then, of course, for you, again, changing your shoes. So let's say you're at the farmer's market and then you come home. Before you go out to the chicken coop, um, in my mind, it's easy to just leave a pair of slippers or something or clogs or whatever outside the back door. And that's the only shoes you use to enter the coop area so that you're not bringing anything in from outside your property. Yeah. I mean, it really is just that cleanliness and exclusion. That's kind of like the two biggest ones. In an ideal world, you could try to keep your chickens inside, inside the coop. Mm-hmm. That's It's like telling your kid to stay inside yeah. when they're sick in the middle of summer, Especially right? in the spring, they want to be outside. Yeah, they yeah. want to be able to have that fresh air and be outside and move around and, and peck and all those things. So, again, if you can exclude anything from that flock, from your flock, that's going to be the ideal situation. And for those that were thinking, oh, I'm going to add two or three chickens nope. to my flock this year, now is not the time. This is one of those cases where if you just practice a little bit of caution, um, we should be out of this and hopefully in a relatively short amount of time. 
And for those that are interested in finding out more information or asking questions or they see some of the uh, effects of this, who, who would they contact? So you can, and, and you guys are more than welcome to contact me and I can put you in the right direction. And, uh, and my number at my office, so get your pen or your pencil ready. I'm going to give you three seconds. One, two, three, nine, seven, zero, three, eight, two, six, four, six, four. Or if you want to contact the bigwigs, if you actually think something is wrong, or if you want a vet to walk you through this, which is going to be much better than me as an extension agent walking you through this, you can call the state vet office and they can be reached at 303-869-9130. Well, that's our public service announcement for this week. And it's a bit of a dark one, but it's a good thing to keep on top of. It is good, yeah. It's part of us as a community. We're trying to watch out for all of our neighbors and all of the chickens and, and ducks because no one likes to euthanize an animal. It is not an enjoyable experience. Right. And one of those things that people, I think, find out when they start growing some food in their backyards or having a few chickens is you feel very protective of your micro ecosystem. And it's kind of interesting how that reminds us how it's also interconnected with the wider ecosystem that kind of runs things in the background. So year after year, as you get connected to your garden, it can become this part of this extension of you and your, 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 the environment you're taking care of, which is pretty rewarding. Thanks, Tom. That was really pretty inspirational. You know, making your space your own, challenging yourself to make your space something more, and actually doing something that makes you happy. And that's what we're here to do. We're trying to... Uh, Get you all to try to do something that makes you happy and maybe produces a little bit of food. And I can promise you, if you eat a, a fresh carrot from the ground or a fresh tomato, nothing will make you happier. And that does it for this week's episode of The Garden Guys. And as we like to say, you get what you get and you don't throw a fit. See you next week. <laughs> <laughs>